Welcome to Bed Crime Stories Podcast. I'm your host, T. Hi there, bed crimers. Hope you're all doing well. To anyone new here, a warm welcome. Thank you for checking out the channel. Do me a favor. If you find you enjoyed this content or learned something, smash that like button and consider subscribing. Now let's dig in. Today I'm going to continue telling you the backstory of the Dan Markell slash Charlie Adelson case. So on May 24th of 2016, two years after Dan Markell's death, an FBI agent and a police investigator from the Tallahassee Police Department make a visit to an apartment complex in North Miami. Living within the complex is 31-year-old Catherine Magbanawa, or Katie as she's known. Katie's on the phone with her on-again, off-again boyfriend, Zigfredo Garcia, or Tuto, as he's known among friends. Garcia tells Katie that federal special agents came to his workplace. You may recall that Katie was Charlie Adelson's girlfriend back in 2014 when Dan Markell died, and it's believed that Katie is the person who served as the conduit between Charlie Adelson and the two hitmen. So Garcia tells Katie that supposedly someone called a tip line and said something about a trip and a homicide. Garcia tells Katie that he advised the special agents that he'll have his lawyer call them. So in this moment, Katie's upset because special agents are now knocking on her door. He doesn't answer it, and she waits for them to leave. Now, the next day, when Zigfredo Garcia drives to an Exxon mobile station, as he steps out of his Lexus sedan, FBI agents surround him and cuff him. One officer searches Zigfredo, and another searches his vehicle. They find 50 $100 bills, and then Garcia is taken down to the local police station. There, the authorities search his wallet, and lo and behold, he has a small bag of white powder, the stuff you stick up your nose to get high. The police arrest Garcia not for the white powder, but rather for the death of Dan Markell. Now, Garcia's been arrested before, once for not having a fishing license, once for having illicit drugs on him, and many other crimes, but none as serious as this new charge. Now, although the authorities have arrested Garcia for Dan Markell's death, they still don't understand why a guy living in Miami would travel all the way to Tallahassee and then do in a law professor there that he's never met. They don't understand the connection yet. So that's what's happening in terms of the investigation and the case in 2016. Now, meanwhile, Dan Markell's ex-wife, Wendy, has been taking a creative writing class. And one day, she's recorded reading her essay that she wrote about Danny's death. I'm going to play that recording for you now. Ten months ago, someone killed the father of my children. First, we got divorced. And then he got murdered. 
In casual conversations, I don't know whether to call him my ex-late spouse or my late ex-spouse. Except that late ex-spouse sounds like latex spouse. We married when I was in my mid-twenties, when I thought I could cheat the system and marry a man I lacked passionate love for because, hey, didn't that die anyway during marriage? I saw his intellect and big heart and thought he would make a wonderful father for my children. Our marriage dissolved after the children arrived, as the loneliness of being married to someone that didn't view me as an equal crept in. I do believe he loved me the best way he knew how. I mean, he didn't like fiction, so why read my novel? It was logic, not a lack of love. Danny used to tell me that everyone thought I was such a nice person and such a good person, but he was the only one that knew the truth about what a bad person I was. He was convinced I had deluded everyone but him. And this is what Wendy says to the teacher after recording her essay. Shaking from head to toe, and I thought, okay, let's just do this. <laughs> let's just dive in. I didn't have a plan to do it, but it just felt unavoidable. The words kind of just flew out of me, but then when I was done, I sat there and I couldn't look anyone in the eye, and I was sweaty, and I just thought, okay, <laughs> Now I've done it. Now it's out there. Now what? Personally, I'm struck by the nonchalance with which she discusses such a shocking and tragic event. I hear laughter in her voice, not grief. Yes, some people laugh when they're nervous or when discussing highly emotional topics, but I don't think that's what we're hearing here with Wendy. It's upsetting to hear her joke about Danny's demise, and it's equally distressing to learn that Wendy felt she was married to a man for whom she felt zero passion. I'm wondering if she felt anything for him at any time other than a nothingness and a lack of wanting to be with him. I'm also wondering how the Markells felt when they heard this. It had to be yet another dagger to their hearts. Wendy puts the blame for the marriage falling apart squarely on her deceased husband, accusing him of not viewing her as an equal. She also gets in a jab about Danny not reading her novel. I wonder if he tried to read it, but found it not all that captivating. The really interesting part of Wendy's essay is where she talks about Danny telling her that he knew she wasn't a good person, despite her deluding everyone. Did Danny realize his wife was maybe capable of evil deeds before he lost his life? You have to wonder what Danny witnessed in Wendy to make him say these things to her. I'm also wondering why Wendy had a hard time looking people in the class in the eyes after reading her essay and why she got all sweaty. Was this maybe because she does have guilty knowledge of the crime, allegedly? She's not been charged in connection to it, at least not so far. I would think you'd be more prone to crying or sobbing after reading an essay about a person you were once close to who was murdered. I just feel like Wendy lacks empathy. So what does this tell us about her personality? Back to Katie McBanawa. Katie and a friend of hers worked as bartenders at one point. They had one of those jobs where you dress in skimpy clothing and you serve drinks to men and you flirt with them and then they hopefully give you big tips. Well, apparently Katie's boyfriend... Zigfredo Garcia didn't like his woman, 
dressing provocatively and flirting with guys. He sounds very controlling. Now, Katie met Siegfriedo in high school and went on to quickly have two kids with him. So they have history and a rather deep connection. And when Siegfriedo was arrested, Katie was planning to take their daughter to Disney World to celebrate her birthday. But because of Garcia's arrest, Katie changed the plans and didn't go on the trip with the daughter. It was a huge disappointment. So on that weekend, instead of going on the trip, Katie spent a lot of time on the phone. She called her brother, and she tells him about Siegfriedo's arrest, her brother says that Siegfriedo has been playing with the law for years, so it's not surprising. But Katie keeps expressing fear for what's going to happen to Siegfriedo. She's worried he'll be in prison for life. She's concerned that the special agents will come back to her apartment now to interrogate her. And Katie soon gets a call from Luis Rivera's wife, Jessica, who tells Katie they need to talk. In case you don't remember, Luis Rivera is Zigfredo's childhood friend, and he's also the guy who accompanied Garcia to Dan Markel's house, and he was with Zigfredo when Dan Markel was shot. Now, when speaking to Jessica, and when basically speaking to anyone, Katie acts like she has no clue why the feds arrested Zigfredo. She clearly doesn't want to talk about the crime on the phone. Luis Rivera was a Latin King gang member starting from birth, and he was basically born into the gang life. And he was head of the North Miami Latin Kings and was dubbed King Tato. Note that although Rivera stands just five feet four inches tall, he still gives off a very menacing vibe. Now, when Garcia was arrested, Luis Rivera was already behind bars in a federal prison. He was picked up the year before in a raid on the Latin Kings. While in prison, Luis is approached by the cops who are working on the Dan Markel case. The feds say to Luis, Either confess and tell us everything you know, or risk a jury trial where the punishment will be the death penalty or life in prison. Rivera, who has kids, wanted to have a hope and a prayer of getting out of prison one day. He was already serving a 12-year sentence, so the authorities offered him just seven extra years in prison if he would agree to cooperate with them. Rivera mulls it over, and he decides to cooperate. He tells investigators his side of the Dan Markell story and what happened two years earlier in Tallahassee. Rivera says that in the summer of 2014, he and Siegfredo Garcia rented a car and drove to Tallahassee twice. The first trip took place in June of 2014 a month before Dan Markell was done in. Garcia picked Rivera up in a black Hyundai sedan. He started driving toward Tallahassee. Rivera told the authorities that he was used to jobs like this, where he'd be suddenly on the road heading to another city. 
However, he also stated that he normally spends his time robbing drug dealers. Now, during the four-hour-plus drive north, Rivera learns that the trip is not for a robbery, but instead it's to do a guy named Dan Markell in. Once they're near Tallahassee, the two childhood friends, Tuto and Tato, stop at a motel where they party. They smoke weed, they drink, they stay up late. Later, they get back into the rental car and they try to track down Dan Markell. And when they're not tracking Dan Markell, Tuto and Tato hit up the local Hooters to eat and drink. Now, during this first trip, they don't harm Dan Markell. And part of the reason for that is that Luis Rivera gets spooked. He tells Garcia that he doesn't think this job is going to be worth it. And he secretly has his own weapon with him, just in case Garcia tries to hurt him. He's getting a little paranoid about the whole thing. So Rivera convinces Garcia not to do the hit on this trip, so the two friends return to Miami. Although he doesn't know it, Danny Markell gets a free pass for one more month of life. But Katie McBanawa isn't pleased with Tuto and Tato's fruitless trip to Tallahassee. According to Rivera, Katie tells Garcia if he wants her back, he better get his fanny back to Tallahassee and he better get the job done. So they had an on-again, off-again relationship. And during one of those off-again times, Katie was dating Charlie Adelson. And Garcia was not happy about that. He actually loathed Charlie Adelson. And what's really ironic to me is that although he loathes Charlie, he ends up being the guy who gets the job done for him. And ultimately, he ends up going to prison for life for Charlie Adelson. So now Katie is controlling Garcia. Well, Garcia clearly wanted Katie back because he and Rivera drove back to Tallahassee the following month. Per Rivera, on trip number two to Tallahassee, Zigfredo and Katie are texting each other throughout the four-hour drive. And after Zigfredo and Luis commit the crime, they call Katie to ask where's the money. Katie tells them they'll get the cash the next day. This detail surprised me because I would have thought that hitmen would want at least 50% of the money before they commit the crime, like a good-faith deposit from Charlie Adelson. I think if someone asked me to do something that could destroy my life, I'd want a minimum of half the dough up front, just saying. When the cops trace the rental cars and cell phones back to Garcia and Rivera, they began looking into Katie McBanawa, and one of the places the investigators went to for information was the Adelson's dental practice. They wanted any and all records pertaining to Katie McBanawa's employment there. When the feds asked the Adelson's office manager for the employment records, the employee goes behind the scenes to call her boss, Charlie Adelson, in private. Charlie tells the employee He's in surgery. He advises her not to tell the officers anything. So the employee tells the feds that Katie works there, which is actually a lie, while Katie gets $3,000 a month from the Adelson Institute. She doesn't actually do anything for the money. Charlie also tells the employee 
to tell the officers that the dental practice belongs to his father, Harvey, and that she doesn't have access to any employment records. So the feds walk away without any info about Catherine McBanawa. But they want to talk to Katie, and they plan to offer her a deal to cooperate. The deal is, if Katie spills the beans, the police will give her immunity from prosecution. But Katie doesn't want to admit to anything. If she tells them what she knows, then she'll have to throw Zigfredo Garcia, the father of her children, under the bus. So Katie refuses the deal. She refuses also to implicate Charlie Adelson. Now, had she taken that deal, she would have never spent a day in prison. And currently, she's spending the rest of her life in prison because of the crime. Now, while all this is going on, the feds are secretly recording all phone calls between Charlie and Katie. Katie, as I said before, is the conduit between the hitman and Charlie Adelson. And clearly, Charlie Adelson is the one with a connection to Dan Markell. So thus, two years after the crime, the cops were already looking into the Adelson family as potential co-conspirators. That's all for this fourth episode of The Backstory. I'll continue it in the next episode. See you next time on Bed Crime Stories. Now smash that like button. It's a free way to help me.